Good morning. Before we start, I wanted to say thank you to the worship group today. I think the worship was excellent, really brought us into a, the presence of God nicely, so thank you for that. My name's Glenn, and I have the privilege and pleasure of speaking this morning. I have spoke a couple of times here at Oasis, um, but I've never had to do a first and a second service, so I'm really fighting the urge to do the Bruce Forsyth thing where I tell you you're my favourites, because there's no favourites in church, but you are my favourites, I just say that. <laughs> We're going to continue with the theme of building kingdom culture, uh, understanding what that means for us as individuals, what that means for us as a church, and how that outworks its way in our places, wherever we find them, whether that's at work, university, social settings. Last week, Richard did a great job of unpacking comfort, and that's online now, so if you haven't, didn't get a chance last week to listen to that, I would really recommend doing that. The two topics that I'm going to look at today are hope and ju um, justice and mercy. Um, big topics. And when I was researching for, researching for this talk, um, sometimes when you take on a biblical subject and you try and understand it, you have to really dig under it. You have to kind of cross-reference scripture, see what different theologians say, really wrestle with scripture. For justice and mercy, I didn't find that to be the case because Scripture's pretty in your face when it comes to justice and mercy and it's a running thread all the way through. So, we'll, And I'm going to that in more detail. I like to give my talk a topic, uh, a title rather, and this morning I've called the title of, of this talk, There's a Stone in My Shoe, What Am I Going to Do? There's a Stone in My Shoe, What Am I Going to Do? Now, if I was as cool as Colin, I would have done that to a rap or like a reggae beat, but I'm just not cool enough to do that. So um, I'm going to unpack what that means and, and the kind of emphasis behind that as we go on. Before we start, I'd like to just um, share with you a definition of justice and mercy, just so that we can frame it quite nicely for the talk. So Justice is the biblical justice involves making individuals, communities, and the whole, the cosmos whole by upholding both goodness and impartiality. Biblical justice involves making individuals, communities, and the cosmos whole by upholding both goodness and impartiality. And mercy is about compassion or forgiveness shown towards someone whom it is within one's power to punish or harm. For the first part of the talk this morning, I'm going to be reading from three scriptures. And if you haven't got your Bible, they will come up on the screen. Um, I mentioned in the first service that I'm a little bit unapologetic that I'm reading three lengthy portions of scripture. But I think it's more important to hear what God's got to say than anything I can contribute on top of that. So the first scripture that we're going to look at this morning is Micah 6. And I'm taking it from the NIV version. So listen to what the Lord says. Stand up, plead your case before the mountains. Let the hills hear what you have to say. Hear you mountains, the Lord's accusation. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a case against his people. He is lodging a charge against Israel. My people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. I brought you out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you, also Aaron and Miriam. 
My people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, plotted and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered. Remember your journey from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come with him to come to him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with a thousand rams, with ten thousand rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly before your God. To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly before your God. I'm a fairly simple fellow. Anybody who knows me will probably reflect that and share that with you. And I love formulas. I love knowing if I do X and Y, it leads to this. And here we have a really good example that God has made it very, very clear. It's no, there's almost like no guesswork needed there. God has said, if you want to do what I require, you need to act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly. Now I want to move on to Isaiah 58. And I've taken this from the message Bible, and you'll see a similar kind of thread coming through in this scripture. Shout a full-throated shout, hold nothing back, a trumpet, trumpet blast shout. Tell my people what's wrong with their lives. Face my family Jacob and their sins. They're busy, busy, busy at worship. And they love studying all about me. To all appearances, they're a nation of right-living people. They're law-abiding and God-honoring. They ask me, what's the right thing to do? And they love having me on their side. But they also complain, why do we fast and you don't look our way? Why do, you humble our, why do we humble ourselves and you don't even notice? Well, here's why. The bottom line is on your fast days, the bottom line on your fast days is profit. You drive your employees much too hard. You fast, but at the same time you bicker and fight. You fast, but you swing a mean fist. The kind of fasting, this kind of fasting won't get your prayers lifted off the ground. Do you think this is the kind of fast day that I'm after? A day to show, humil off, show off humility? To put on a pious long face and parade around solemnly in black? Do you call that fasting a fast day that I, God, would like? This is the kind of fast day that I'm after. To break the chains of injustice. To get rid of exploitation in the workplace. To free the oppressed. To cancel debts. What I'm interested in is seeing you share your food with the hungry. Inviting the homeless poor into your homes, putting clothes on the shivering ill clad, being available to your own families. Do this and the lights will turn on and your lives will turn around at once. Your righteousness will pave your way. The God of glory will secure your passage. And then you, when you pray, God will answer. You call out for help and I will say, here I am. And then the final scripture Matthew 25. Now, this is a very sobering scripture for me, and it's very powerful. I think sometimes when you read scriptures, you can become very familiar with them. You know, Matthew 25, I know that. Um, and that can make you a little bit complacent, but this is a very powerful message, something that we should consider deeply. When a son of man comes in his glory and all the angels are with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him. And he will separate the people one from another. A shepherd, a shepherd separate the sheep from the goats. 
He will put the sheep on his right and he will put the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. And then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you and thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you as a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? Then the king will reply, truly I, will, truly I tell you, whatever you did for the least of these brothers and sisters, you did it for me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me. You who are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. I was hungry and you didn't give me anything to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you didn't invite me in. I needed clothes and you didn't clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you didn't look after me. And then they will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry? When did we see you thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and we didn't help you? And then he will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you didn't do for the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Quite heavy scripture and quite kind of them soft blows in the stomach you're like oh okay I've got to do something about that um, what I get through all three of these scriptures is that God identifies himself very closely with the marginalized with the poor with the suffering in society he's right there if you feed them you're feeding God if you ignore them you're ignoring God he puts himself right in the place where they are and I think as Christians, it's clear that he wants us to be there too. So the question I ask myself is, how is the church doing generally? You know, and that's a big question, and it's not really, I haven't really got the credibility to answer that in its full. But often when I speak to people, both Christian and non-Christian, we're really quick to point out the failings of the church. Really quick to point, okay, the, the church was wrong in this area or did this wrong, and to do a bit of church bashing. When it comes to justice and mercy, there's another story to that narrative, and that is how much the church, the body of Christ, has done in shaping society in the areas of justice and mercy. We've done an amazing amount, and I just want to share with you as a way of encouragement of all some of the things that point to how much the church has influenced society. The church has been involved with many different things. Examples include bringing an end to child killing, which at one point in history, in cultures in Rome and Greece, would have been something not only legal, but it would have been applauded. The church is pivotal in bringing to an end things like cannibalism around the world. These are just examples of the emphasis that the church has on the value of people. The Human Rights Act is birthed out of the biblical principle that each and every one of us is made in the image of God and therefore each and every one of us has intrinsic value. To the church, the principles of, those, of the Bible and the way that the 
church has responded to that into the outworking of society, it's hard to over-exaggerate the impact that we have had. There are charities and organisations that have been set up that do incredible work today around the world. Charities like the Red Cross, the Salvation Army, Dr Bernardo's Compassion. Here in the UK we have organisations and charities like Christians Against Poverty fighting for the poor. We have Hope for Justice fighting for those who are victims of modern day slavery or human trafficking as it's now referred to. We have the Trussell Trust that's up and down the country, hundreds and hundreds of food banks are in existence because of the Trussell Trust that work through the local church. So there's some great stuff, really good stuff going on. Here in Oasis, we do some great stuff as well. Last week, we celebrated our work with the bridge. There was an afternoon that Ben Kite put on where we all got together, raised the profile of the bridge, looking at how we can raise funds for it. And the bridge is something where we demonstrate that we stand shoulder to shoulder with people who are struggling in certain areas of life. May, they may have experienced the unfairness of the injustice in society. Certainly there's maybe going into the bridge, people are experiencing something less than a wholeness in themselves. And here we are, we're stepping in that gap and saying, we're right there with you, we love you and we support you. This is the street outreach, a great program where we're again going out. I love the thought that we go out and we hug people. I think that's just incredible. I mean, where else would you get away with that? You know, what organization just could go out and, and hug people and tell them we're there for you, we, we pray for you, we want to be there and we want to stand with you. And we also, on a monthly basis, we have food collections, again, supporting food banks in our local city. So we're doing some great stuff. We have people of the Christian faith throughout its history standing up and making a difference, making such an impact in, in culture and, and bringing a sense of kingdom culture that they have changed the course of history, names that we will be familiar with. People like Martin Luther King, William Wilberforce, Mother Teresa, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, people that have etched not only a mark in our minds today, but also in the history books. For each and every one of these people you could name that we would recognise as a name, there are millions of Christians worldwide fighting today on behalf of injustice, trying to balance up the inequalities in society and bring wholeness. So there's a lot that we should be proud of in terms of the church and, I mean, and proud in the right way that we're working daily to continue to usher in this kingdom, this kingdom culture that came and was first demonstrated with Jesus Christ as he walked this earth. At that point, a new kingdom was birthed and each and every day we have the opportunity to move that kingdom forward. I want to share with you five points, five thoughts, five recommendations um, to to not only challenge, but also to encourage us today to continue on with this mantle. We see people in the past, what they've done. We see organizations, what they're doing today. We see some of the stuff that we're doing here. And 
quite frankly, you know, it's exciting and it's the stuff that we should be getting involved with. And it's about now taking that challenge and keep on going, keep on keeping on and being challenged if we feel that we're not fully in and fully committed. It's how do we do that? So the five points which will hopefully come up. <laughs> the first one I've called not on my watch. Not on my watch. And for me, this is about each and every one of us committing to the battle. And I don't use that word in an overly inflammatory way, but there is a battle going on. There's a battle for righteousness. There's a battle for a just society. We only have to look at the newspapers, watch the TV, see the things around us to know that there is a battle there. I think of people like Martin Luther King and William Wilberforce and Mother Teresa, and I imagine that there was a point in time in their lives where they were so enraged by what they could see going on. Inequality to black people, inequality to women, inequality um, by making people slaves. That they couldn't do anything else but respond. They had to do something. They couldn't just ignore it any longer. This righteous anger would have built up. And I pray today that all of us will, all, will have that kind of righteous anger but that righteous anger would work its way out in a righteous way because if it doesn't it becomes a fault we need to work through what it means when we see something when something inside of us gets so stirred up and so angry and so uncomfortable we need to work out how do we take that on what do we do with that how do we enter into the battle and practically what does that mean well, entering into the battle can mean different things for different people. For some people, that will mean as simply and as powerfully as entering into a war of, of prayer. If you see something, I, I used the example earlier of children in Syria who are being bombed. Now, they did nothing more than happen to be born in a country where there were war-torn and terrible, terrible things are happening. Stepping into the battle may be getting on our knees, standing up by getting on our knees and praying for them and praying for them daily until we see breakthrough. For other things, it may be that you have to give of your time, your energy, your resources. You may partner with a charity that's fighting against an unjust cause. It may be that you're a pioneer and you set something up for yourself. I don't think there's any fixed formula for this, but the point of this not on my watch is by saying, I recognize something is not right. Something shouldn't be happening. That is an offense to God. And that's something that I have to do something about. And I'm going to commit to doing it. I sometimes think about what it will be like when we come face to face with Jesus. And my mind and my words can never quite grasp it fully. I don't think any of us could possibly grasp it fully, but I, I just imagine that it will be the most remarkable uh, thing that we can ever imagine. I think even our senses in this world are so limited, we can't imagine how great it is going to be when we come face to face with him. What I hope that doesn't happen on that day is that my first conversation with Jesus is something like this, where he says, Glenn, had this in mind for you to do I had this in mind for you to do I put you in a place and I stirred you up in such a way 
but you got too comfortable, you got too complacent, you got too apathetic towards that cause, you allowed your heart to get a little bit too hardened and didn't really do what I wanted you to do. I hope that that conversation never happens. I hope that I can never look back and think, oh gosh, that one chance that I had at life on earth, that short period of existence here on this planet was wasted by doing things that are not at the heart of what God wants us to do, which we can see through scripture. There's a film called Schindler's List. You're probably all familiar with it. It's quite a famous film. And in that film, you see Schindler, who's a German. He's rescuing hundreds of Jews. He does things. He he, he manipulates his business. He does all sorts of things to be able to protect and save the Jewish people from the Holocaust. And even today, there are Jews known as Schindler's Jews. Uh, A powerful story. And at the end of this story... The Jews are wanting to thank him. They give him a gift and he's surrounded by lots of Jewish people and they give him this gift. And he starts to have this emotional breakdown. He almost starts uncontrollably weeping and feeling sad and he's, he's kind of pointing to his car and he's going, if I would have just sold that car, I could have, sold, I could have saved another five people's uh, five Jewish people. If I, and he has this badge, and he's, he's like, this gold badge. If I would have sold this badge, I could have saved another two people. And he did an, ama- you know, he did an amazing thing. He saved so many people. But there was this regret that he could have done more. And my prayer and my hope for each and every one of us in this room is when we look back on the, leg- the, the legacy that we leave, not that we're looking for, reputation or anything like that when we look back on our mark on history that we don't look back with regret because we got distracted we got comfortable and we got complacent my second point is what is the shape of the stone in your shoe and this comes back to the title earlier so probably all of us have had at one point in our end time a stone in our shoe i'm looking around for some nice maybe it's just me that has Worn out shoes, but maybe. Um, stone in your shoe. And, and what that does, when you have a stone in your shoe, it forces you to do one of two things. You can either stop and address it, get the stone out, or you can walk on. Sometimes when I'm in a rush for the train, you walk on. But when you walk on, it causes you to have to walk differently. You have to walk so that you don't tread on this stone and it doesn't cause you pain. I think it's like that when we're looking at things of injustice. It's like having something in your shoe. You know that it shouldn't be there. You know it shouldn't be going on. And you have a choice. You either stop and you address it, or you have to walk differently. And in a spiritual sense, that walking differently means you have to possibly harden your heart towards injustice. You have to almost kind of go, I know it's there, I can see it, but I'm not going to do anything about it. And therefore, you walk slightly differently spiritually. The point here is knowing what is the shape of the stone in your shoe. To paraphrase one of C.S. Lewis's quotes, he, he says he doesn't believe that one person is responsible. God would call one person to solve all problems else, everywhere. And there are problems all around us, even locally, that we can deal with. I believe in God's wisdom. He stirs each of us as individuals differently. For me, he stirred up a 
a righteous anger towards poverty and modern-day slavery. Because when I think of people, men, women, and especially children, being forced to do something against their will, that really makes me angry and makes me think, I want to do something about that. For each and every one of us, it may be slightly different. You may have something that God stirs in your heart that is different to poverty, to slavery. But the point is, I believe that God, if, if, we, if we, we desire, he will stir something in us. And I would say as a recommendation, if, if, you're, if you already know that, if you already know how God has stirred you, take action. Don't leave the stone in your shoe. But if you don't, but you want to be in the battle because that's what God wants of us, then I say give it some prayer and deep consideration how you might move forward in tackling injustice. My third um, point is about making gratitude your springboard and not guilt. It was interesting in reading through Isaiah 58 again. It seemed like God was talking about very religious people, people that seemed to worship him and seemed to want to study all about him. When it comes to how do we move forward, I don't think it can be a sense of religious guilt. When I was younger, um, both myself and my little brother, we were raised just by my dad until about the age of 11 or 12. And because of that, my dad couldn't work a lot of the time. There were no wraparound uh, clubs at school at that time. And so we, at, by UK standards, we were really quite poor. And one morning, my dad, we had no, you know, very little food in the house. And he tried to make us this breakfast where he would mush this bread up sprinkle it with sugar and add milk on it and then try and convince us that this is a great breakfast for us to have and we're like forget it dad that is not happening we need our cocoa pops you know it was that kind of moment when we moved into the property that my dad is currently at we had we literally had nothing we had a mattress in the front room we had a kettle and we had randomly an old weightlifting bench which is really weird when you got Four, three people trying to sit on a, a weightlifting bench of a night and eat their dinner. We, I remember it's September, so it was starting to get a little bit cold, and we, was eating, uh, we were eating salad and eggs that were boiled in this kettle. Then you fast forward 17 years, and I'm working for an organization called Christians Against Poverty. And this was an amazing charity whereby I would have to go into people's homes, into their houses, their flats, and I would start them on their journey to become debt-free. I'd be meeting with them and, and praying with them and working through their finances. I remember going into this one lady's house. She lived in a high-rise flat in a place called Chelmsley Wood. I remember going into her flat and, and looking around, and she had nothing. She had a mattress in her front room. I don't know the common theme is, but she had a mattress there. Admittedly, she did have a TV. And then she had a table and a fridge freezer in her kitchen. And when we opened the fridge freezer, she had some eggs and milk. And I just thought it was one of those moments where it hit you. You know, God has brought me through a situation. God has given me provision both physically and spiritually. He has blessed me so much. And here I am being able to input and, and stand shoulder to shoulder with someone else who's in pretty much exactly the same situation that myself and my dad, we found ourselves in. And it was out of that gratitude to think, God, you've done so much for me. I cannot 
you know, something has to happen here. I have to do something as a result of that. That urge to, to not feel as though I owed God something, but just a natural, genuine, authentic desire to say, you've helped me and loved me so much, Lord. I want to show how much you love to other people as well. I want to love people. It's gratitude that drives us forward, not guilt. And I think we need to, you know, for all of us in this room, poverty will not be the common denominator. And I pray that it never is. But we can all say that we've received mercy from Christ. And we can all say that the justice that Jesus fulfilled on the cross, we are all benefactors of that today. And words cannot probably explain how grateful we should be. Um, so that, that gratitude should drive us forward and want us to step into the battle. My fourth point is about getting up close and personal. Getting up close and personal. And this is really about having a close proximity with the people and the battles that, of injustice that we're trying to fight against. We can't do this from a distance. Again, I refer to um, Christians Against Poverty. What makes them such an amazing charity is that when they take a client on to help them get out of debt, you don't get a situation where they just phone them up, say, or send them some forms, and the person has to send it back, and then it's all done remotely via you know, computer, and there's kind of correspondence by mail. You have people going into their homes. You have people sitting in all sorts of situations. I, I used to go into some flats and some houses, and you wouldn't believe the way that some people live. It can be breathtaking at some point. You know, people, even with people that have no money, that I'm, you know, maybe got 10 cats, and it's kind of like overwhelming. You walk in, it's a, it's a strange situation. I remember going into this one lady's house, and she had stuff everywhere, not valuable stuff. It was just like clothes, and, and, and just everything was it, was, it was a real mess, and it was almost a reflection of where she was in her life. And she asked me if I wanted to sit down. My co-worker had already grabbed the one seat that was available. And then she asked me if I, I wanted to sit down, and I'm looking around, and I'm thinking, exactly where do I do that? And so I ended up having to sit on the floor cross-legged. And so you, the thing is, you go into people's homes, you meet them at the place that you are, and you're shoulder to shoulder with them. You're praying with them. When I think about what Christ did for us, he stepped into our world. He walked this earth. He experienced the pain, the hurt, the rejection, the loneliness that we all experience. And as a result of him doing that, I think all of us have a very different relationship with God as a result. If you, it would be hard to imagine what relation, our relationship with God would look like if Jesus had not walked the earth as one of us, had not got up close and personal, had not got close proximity with us to know how we feel, to know the temptations and the struggles that we have, and yet to step in that gap and be close to us. So I think fighting injustice, exercising mercy will be a messy business. But we have to be there. We have to be in the midst of it. We have to roll up our sleeves and get close proximity with the people that we're trying to help. My fifth and final point is about remaining hopeful. I, 
I'm convinced that you cannot fight injustice if you're not hopeful that you can do something about it. And for us as believers, as followers of Christ, we have good reason to be hopeful. We've seen the end of the book. We know what it's going to be like. Scriptures in Isaiah, scriptures in Revelation that tell us that one day there will be no more tears, there will be no more hurt, there will be no more pain. One day the lion will lie down with the lamb. One day all the valleys will be leveled. We will have a fair, just world. All things will be made new. And therefore it is really appropriate that we do have hope Hoping the one that's going to bring this change. And when we see injustice, when we see things going on that are not fair, that are not right, rather than feeling crushed, feeling broken, feeling as though there is nothing that we can do, nothing that we can change, we have to have hope in, in what we know the end will be like. And in that, every single day, we have the opportunity to reflect that hope to non-believers, I was saying again in the first service, if I didn't believe in Christ, if I didn't believe in what he did for us, I honestly, when I see the news sometimes, I don't know how I'd get out of bed. It, it seems like such an unfair world. It seems like such an unjust world. But because of my hope in him, that gives me the strength to keep battling, keep ushering in this new kingdom, keep advancing forward with this new kingdom and fighting the chains of injustice. We must believe and have hope that we can make a difference. No matter how small that is, no matter what area that is, that each and every one of us can play our part. I just want to leave you with two final quotes. One of them is by Robert Kennedy, the politician. Few of us will have the greatness to bend history itself. But each of us can work to change a small portion of events and in the total of those acts will be, the, will be written the history of this generation. And in the total of those acts will be written the history of this generation. Christians, what do we want this generation to stand for? Our small acts on a daily basis could change the history of our generation. That's a powerful, powerful quote. And then finally, a quote from Martin Luther King. The arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. The arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. And my prayer for you, me, us today is that that arc will keep on bending under the weight of our intentional acts and that we will keep advancing the kingdom culture forward.